when I stand before you, judges of Israel, in this court, to accuse Adolf Eichmann, I do not stand alone. Here with me at this moment stands six million prosecutors. But alas, they cannot rise to level the finger of accusation in the direction of the glass dock and cry out Jacques against the man who sits there. Because their ashes have been piled up in the mounds of Auschwitz and the fields of Treblinka or spilled into the rivers of Poland and their graves are scattered throughout the length and breadth of Europe. Their blood cries to heaven but their voice cannot be heard. Thus it falls to me to be their mouthpiece and to deliver the heinous accusation in their name. So began Gideon Hausner, Israel's Attorney General, in the trial of Adolf Eichmann on April 11, 1961. This one-time singular moment in history when the Jewish people put on trial a mastermind of their murder and oppression. For five months, the nation was riveted by the stories that came out and by the man behind the bulletproof glass. It was not for revenge or even justice, though it was for those things. It was also to tell the nation's youth why they had a country and what it is that they were fighting against and for whom they were fighting for. The last three episodes we heard about the hunt for and capture of Nazi mastermind Adolf Eichmann. On May 11, 1960, he was abducted in Argentina and 10 days later brought to Israel to stand trial. That's what we're discussing today and the next episode. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Peter Malkin, the Israeli secret agent who had physically captured Adolf Eichmann in Argentina, stood in line outside the court in Jerusalem, waiting to get in. It was heavily guarded. Everyone checked carefully. Nothing left the chance. Even Eichmann's guards were Jews with Middle Eastern ancestry to ensure they didn't have European relatives whom they would be tempted to exact revenge for. Eichmann was famously kept inside a bulletproof glass booth. The court was amphitheater style, so that members of the public were sitting only yards away from him at all times, and the whole trial was filmed from beginning to end. The nation was fascinated by this pale, thin man in the dark suit, the very personification of evil to them. But no matter the horrifying testimony told against him, he managed to stay serene and poised, matter-of-fact. Malkin remembered from that day the man's astonishing self-control, his sense of certainty, his maddening, almost unbelievable moral obtuseness. He never once wavered in protesting his innocence, his following of orders, the moral certainty that he had acted competently and justly in the eyes of Germany. Briefly, their eyes met. 
I went into into the court, I saw the judges and Black and the prosecutor, and I saw this glass uh, boot, Eichmann inside, and I start to push my way through the benches near a place that I can face him. I said he raised his head and looked at me and our eyes, and he didn't say a word, just looked at me in a surprise, like waiting, see, saying, you see, here I am in the boot glass. What do you say about it? I looked at him and I nodded my head. It was a strange feeling, Malkin went on, that of all the people sitting around him in the courtroom, Eichmann was the only one who knew who he really was. No one else knew he was a spy. That knowledge, and their experience together in the safe house in Argentina, made them have a special kind of relationship, Malkin said. With that brief moment, Peter Malkin left the court and never saw Eichmann again. The trial was meticulously planned, the defense robust. Eichmann would have ample opportunity to tell his story. Indeed, Israel wanted to hear it. But the Holocaust would have its story told too. I mentioned at the beginning of this miniseries that Israel hadn't much heard the Holocaust yet in its 13 years of existence. That's not to say the Holocaust hadn't played a role in the state. It had, in a big way. Of course, every conflict with the Arabs, from terrorism to full-scale war, was tinged with the memory of the Holocaust and the state was explicit in its promise to protect Jews from a second genocide. The 1950s saw the Holocaust wrapped up in politics, the reparations agreement with Germany and the trial of Rudolf Kastner, Yad Vashem, the museum and research center had been created. The Holocaust was never far from Israeli minds. But up to this point, the Holocaust had generally served the needs of the state. The individual survivors did not find much public space for their experiences. Their stories were subordinated to the immediate challenges of the state, and by the Zionist and Israeli warrior ethos that demanded that the new Jew look forward at their sovereignty and not backwards at their oppression. Holocaust survivors felt seen but not heard. Their collective survivorship offered little expression for the individual, perpetuating their suffering through a kind of public silence. So some, like Gideon Hausner, were determined to use this trial as an opportunity for the state, which had demanded so much from the survivors, to now serve their needs. Israel was condemned the world over for its kidnapping of Eichmann, an Argentinian citizen on Argentinian soil. Privately, however, the world's diplomats congratulated Israel on a job well done. Ben-Gurion wrote a private message to the president of Argentina, assuring him that the operation was not directed at Argentinian sovereignty. He was sorry if any lasting harm was done. Surely the president can understand, wrote Ben-Gurion, that for Israel, Eichmann was a special situation. They could not pass up the opportunity to act on behalf of six million murdered Jews. The American Jewish Community Establishment was also highly critical of Israel. They objected to the trial on two levels. Prominent American Jewish leaders expressed concern that Israel's action would just lead to more anti-Semitism. 
But more to the point, they objected to the implication that Israel, in holding the trial as the Jewish state, put too much emphasis on the Jewish experience of the Holocaust. Eichmann, some insisted, was a war criminal for crimes against humanity, not just the Jews. Even where the Holocaust targeted Jews specifically, many American Jews wanted to broaden that focus in a way that they argued that the Jewish state, with its focus on the Jewish experience, could not. Israel hosting a trial, they said, made it seem like the Holocaust was exclusively Jewish. Ben-Gurion was absolutely irate at this argument. He railed against what he called American Jews' inferiority complex. American Jews seem want to criticize crimes against humanity, he said, but apparently not when such crimes are directed at the Jews. Only Jews happy in their foolish embrace of assimilation, he said, would profess not to care about justice for the suffering of the Jews in the Holocaust. Needless to say, this did not win him much popularity amongst the American Jewish establishment, with whom he had already been feuding since the establishment of the state. Ben-Gurion believed that Israel spoke for all Jews. The Eichmann trial was then a natural extension of that notion. The Holocaust was committed against the Jews. Israel had the moral and historic authority to speak and act on their behalf. Therefore, the Jewish state was entirely justified in trying him. The American Jewish establishment rejected the idea that Israel spoke for them. That issue was magnified by the Eichmann trial and has never really gone away. But in Israel itself, the capture of Eichmann was the biggest story of the new decade and led to an outpouring of national pride and a huge boost to Israeli identity. And this is what David Ben-Gurion was going for. For the first time, Israel is judging the murderers of the Jewish people, he said, and let us bear in mind that only the independence of Israel could create the necessary conditions for this historic act of justice. The Eichmann trial was yet another affirmation of the creation of Israel. Later on, he would also emphasize the trial's educational purpose. He wanted young Israelis to learn about the Holocaust, to hear the stories of their parents, aunts, and uncles, and those who were murdered, to understand why they had this country, and why, when they turned 18, they were asked to fight for it. They would get all that, and more. <laughs> Survivor after survivor came to the stand over the summer of 1961, testifying to their personal stories. Some had encountered Eichmann during the war years and testified against him directly, but most had not. For also on trial with Eichmann was the Holocaust itself. As the historian Deborah Lipstadt writes, the trial was the meeting point between history, memory, and the law. Attorney General Gideon Hausner, leading the prosecution, decided that the survivors should be heard from. While this may have been questionable from a legal perspective, says Lipstadt, this decision subsequently gave to the survivors an iconic, almost mythic authority, she wrote. The three judges on the trial allowed all this testimony, but also made it known that they weren't going to base their legal decision on Eichmann's guilt or innocence on it. They understood and supported the wider historic implications of the trial, and therefore the need for witness testimony. At the same time, though, where the testimony wasn't about Eichmann's actions directly, it would be superfluous to their judgment. Yechiel Denur was an Israeli writer, born in Poland, who survived two years in Auschwitz before immigrating to Palestine after the war. 
He rode under the pen name Setnik, followed by the number tattooed in the camp on his arm, 135633. Setnik in Yiddish means a concentration camper. Gideon Hausner had insisted that he testify. He was deeply uncomfortable from the moment he began. One word of note, I have edited these clips for length, taking out some long pauses and bits of testimony. Also, if you're listening with kids, some of these clips might be a bit disturbing for them, so be aware of that. What is the reason why you chose the literary pseudonym Ka Tsetnik, Mr. Dinor? This is not a pen name. I do not regard myself as a writer writing literature. This is actually the history of the Auschwitz planet. I myself was at Auschwitz camp for two years. The time there is not a concept as it is here in our planet. Every fraction of a second has a different wheels of time. And the inhabitants of that planet had no names. They breathed and lived according to different laws of nature. They did not live according to the laws of this world of ours, and they did not die. Their name was a number. Katsetnik number so-and-so. Dinur described the clothing of a concentration camper, and a guard brought him the prosecution's exhibit, the striped gray uniform of an Auschwitz prisoner. As he spoke, Dinur's body language became more and more agitated. He slumped in his chair, then he stood for a moment, then whipped back around to sit down. He swayed. His eyes darted all over the place. Hausner had trouble connecting with the witness. The judge, confused about Dinur's agitation, implored him to listen. Uh, could I perhaps, Mr. Dinur, put a few questions to you, if you will consent? President of court, Mr. Dinur, please, please listen to Mr. Hausner and to me. Check it, check it, check it. Dinur suddenly fell backwards and rolled over on his stomach, unconscious. He had fainted. Police ran to prop him up, and his wife, who was in the audience, rushed forward as well. The judge stopped the proceedings, and Dinur was carried out on a stretcher. He would not return. His testimony lasted just under ten minutes. Adolf Eichmann looked on all this with a scowl from his bulletproof booth. Another witness, Dr. Martin Foldy, originally from Czechoslovakia, described in detail his experience upon arriving in Auschwitz with his wife, son, and daughter. The dreaded selection process, when people were either sent to the right, because they were strong enough to work, or to the left, where they were immediately gassed to death. 
They arrived in Auschwitz stuffed under trains from all over Europe by Adolf Eichmann's department. If you saw the movie Schindler's List, you saw there Dr. Foldy's testimony, in which he described his encounter with a German officer who was dressed, he remembered, in a spruced-up uniform. And then he asked, where is Mummy? And I said she went to the left. Then he said to my boy, all right, run, join your mother. I thought, how can he possibly find his mother? After all, there were many women. There was a cluster of people. Uh, my girl wore a red uh, overcoat, and I still saw that red spot. And this red spot was the sign that my wife was also there. But this red spot was uh, waning, of course, and was smaller and smaller. I went to the right, and I never saw them again. The girl in the red dress, famously the only splash of color in Steven Spielberg's black and white film, was a real child, two and a half years old. As ever, Eichmann sat calmly in his booth, a slight grimace on his face, but otherwise displaying no reaction, no emotion. These were the stories that hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been carrying alone for 16 years. The survivors testified not simply for the matter of trying a criminal. For the first time, they felt they had permission to speak publicly about their individual experiences, that the nation now wanted to hear their stories. As difficult as it was for them, they seized this moment on the witness stand to tell the whole country what had happened to them, knowing that all of Israel was listening. Israelis often had the hardest time grappling with what they perceived as the failure to resist. There were millions of Jews, they wondered. How could they not simply rise up in the camps and the ghettos and fight off the Nazis, like the Jews did in the Warsaw Ghetto? How could they go, went the popular refrain, like lambs to the slaughter? In a country forever fighting for its existence, in which nearly everyone served in the army, this question was perplexing. Moshe Baisky was a judge in Tel Aviv, and later a member of the Israeli Supreme Court. During the war, he had been a part of Oscar Schindler's group, forging documents that Schindler used to help escaping Jews. Eventually, he and his brother were themselves placed on Schindler's famous list, working at his factory in Poland. Gideon Hausner asked Besky to explain how it was that at his camp, where 15,000 Jews were gathered, there was not resistance to the acts of brutality that the people were forced to witness. Mr. Hausner, Dr. Besky, 15,000 people were standing there and hundreds of guards were facing you. Why didn't you revolt? Why didn't you charge and attack these guards? You can push it. First, today, I too, after 18 years, cannot describe the feeling of fear, the fear today when I stand before your honors does not exist any longer, and I believe that one cannot Describe it. This was a terror. The gazing itself on the hanging of a boy 
there is no possibility of reacting and the belief that the war will end one day and to endanger 15,000 men and even then if we would make an attempt where to near us there were poles 1,000 poles they were also shot and killed and 100 meters away from the camp they had their homes where to run but where could a Jew run to Many witnesses spoke to the nature of resistance and to the helplessness of the Jews, who by the time it came to be murdered had already been starved, beaten, riddled with disease, and imbued with a systematic process of hopelessness and dehumanization. If there was any testimony that the nation needed to hear, these answers were some of the most compelling. Ultimately, the weeks of witness testimony, one after another after another, had a profound impact on Israeli identity on the nation's sense of its Jewish self. Again, it wasn't like Israelis didn't know about the Holocaust or recognize its survivors. It's that there hadn't been this kind of sustained public expression of their experiences, and Israelis found themselves with deeper feelings of kinship towards the survivors. These weren't helpless weaklings who went like lambs to the slaughter. These were proud and resilient Jews who were in a position of extreme powerlessness. That they were victims, Israelis realized, wasn't because of some feebleness that Zionism had eradicated in the Jewish homeland, but because of circumstance. Survivors started to feel much less alone. In recognizing the humanity of the survivors in their midst, Israelis felt a reawakened pride in the Jewish character of their Israeli state. In her recent book on the Eichmann trial, Deborah Lipstadt writes that, for the first time, the Jewish people, who during the war had looked this way and that for someone to speak on their behalf, had risen not to implore others to save them, but to prosecute. Here was a representative of the Jewish people speaking, not as a supplicant begging for help, but as a government official demanding long-delayed justice. Israelis recognized their new collective power. Had Israel been around just a few years earlier, Lipstadt writes, they would have done more than grant the victims refuge. Israel would have welcomed them home. As Adolf Eichmann sat frowning and fidgeting in his bulletproof glass booth, the human story of the wreckage he wrought was broadcast around the world. Wherever you were in Israel, you couldn't escape it on TV or the radio. From your home and on the bus and in the store and at the office, every Israeli heard the survivor experience. Still, as I said, it was Eichmann who was on trial, and Israel entitled him to a defense. After weeks of listening to the victims, the perpetrator would get his turn. And that, too, was heard around the world. Eichmann had an overarching defense. I was small potatoes, and I was just following orders. In the end, he held himself up as yet another victim, too, one who did his job well, but harbored no ill feelings towards the Jews. That's the next episode, which you can listen to right now. The music today was Yuval Dayan singing Until You Return. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot. See you later. <laughs> Oh,
טוב, לטוב.